It was almost real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast, episode 39.5. Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. We're doing another bonus episode, so you'll get an episode every Monday in December. And in this episode, I'm going to talk about my recent research project I've been doing on Ed Strangler Lewis. And we'll give a couple updates as well as a review. But I'd like to introduce my uh, co-host and frequent other commentator. Dangerous Dan is joining me in the studio today. We'll have the uh, all four of us, me, Dan, and my two sons for the next episode. And I have been cajoled, conned, convinced <laughs> yeah. to get the band back together for the New Year's Day episode as well. So hopefully you'll get an episode on January 8th, but it depends on how much sanity I got left <laughs> after the January 1st episode. Well, if it's anything like the Christmas episode, you might have to get you out to, down on Arsenal Street and bring you in. There you go. <laughs> I am actually uh, really trying to get a fifth guest for that uh, episode, but I may have to con him with some Culver's. Oh, yeah. I want to get one of my two favorite Zimmermans on the podcast, my oldest grandson, Solomon. Uh, we've had Connor on a couple times, but we've never had uh, Sweet Pea on. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to have him on just to say hi and listen to me smarten up a couple of marks. But other than that... Bottom uh, marks? Or is, that, is that what you're well, trying Trey to say? And, Trey and Caleb are not wrestling fans well that's true, a lot yeah. of this is all new to them mm-hmm. but uh let's jump into an update first so the research project we're going to talk about today i'm probably a third to a half of the way through and i'm thinking that mid-january is a more realistic release date uh, mm-hmm. right around my birthday actually oh okay and i'm hoping to have it done by then After that project, I am going to do what I've been promising to do for a year now, and that's I'm going to take a couple of months to finish my last St. Louis history book on St. Louis Chief of Detectives William Desmond. I've had a couple of people ask me about that, and I've been meaning to finish that book. If there's one book I wanted to write outside of combat sports history, Mm -hmm. it was that book, because I think more people should know who the Sherlock Holmes of St. Louis was. Right. And he did lots of amazing things in his career. And after that, it'll be back to a it'll be back to a wrestling combat sports history book. I do have another, at least one more boxing book I want to write about the career of Stanley Ketchell, who was actually murdered in Missouri. Oh, okay. In his mid twenties. Oh. Uh, while he was taking vacation from uh, touring and boxing. Yeah. And I've always wanted to, to write that book as well, but that that won't happen until after the next two. Okay. I'm wrestling between about three possible topics for that next wrestling book. Mm-hmm. So once I get the St. Louis History one done, we'll announce on the podcast what the subject of that, that next oh. book will be. Okay. The other thing, we, as a general rule have been fairly hard on Tony Khan, but we haven't been hard on him about his booking because, as I said, if I was booking as somebody who's just been well, a fan, yeah. is that, I, I'd screw Absolutely. it up too. Right, me too. That's that's why I said if we, me and you were bookers, hell, we'd have worse matches than he does. Right. But I do take a, a lot, we do take a lot out on him for his management. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you even know about this yet, but you've got to go listen to it. And anybody that's listening to us really needs to go listen to us. There was a debate this week between Dave Meltzer and Brian Alvarez, who does that figure four uh, radio show uh-huh. together, because Dave Meltzer was trying to say, because AEW has been overrunning every week. Yes. And I don't have a DVR because I don't have cable. Right. But you may know more about this than I do. Mm-hmm. But I do know you set those DVRs to record programs. Yeah. And, and- when you have overruns, it cuts it off still. Yes, and so that's been happening frequently, but it mm-hmm. doesn't happen on the WWE because they already have an overrun programmed in there. Yes, they do. So people still see it on the WWE, but they're not seeing it on AEW. Mm-hmm. And Brian Alvarez was saying AEW should be doing the same thing WWE is doing so you're not missing out on the last minutes of these programs every single week. Exactly. And Dave Belcher 
his two points were they don't know how long the show is going to go, which they should. I was going to say but, if they if they've scheduled it out, they should know exactly when yes. it's going to. Do you think Bill Watts didn't know exactly when Mid South uh, Wrestling was going to end? Uh, Bill Watts, he could have timed it by the sun, probably. Right. Like, and so, but Dave Meltzer was comparing the wrestling show to football or UFC or these other events, and it's not the same. Now, uh, Alvarez said it was a scripted wrestling show. I don't think it's scripted. WWE stuff is scripted. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They, they produce scripts every week. Uh-huh. Because a lot of the garbage that they say on the show is stuff that writers came up with that the wrestlers wouldn't say it that well, way. And, I mean, I, I ask all the time. Even with AEW, I ask all the time mm-hmm. when I hear some of the things people say. I'm like, do adults talk like that? Because I never yeah. talked like that when I was there. Well, and you know, that's another thing. That's why I don't care to watch... WWE because you're going to get maybe three or four matches. Yeah, those. And yeah, and then the rest of those the two hours wrestling matches you just pop up between the vignettes. Exactly, and that's why I'm like, God, I'm getting sick and tired. If I wanted to watch this, I'd watch a soap pop, you know. Right. <laughs> but WWE and AEW both. I know WWE probably has a scripted show, but mm-hmm. AEW is at least running on a format. That's how wrestling shows were always run was on formats. Yeah. You've got this segment that's going to go this long, and, you know, you put things in those segments. Mm-hmm. If things went too long, you might drop a segment out. Right. And then whoever made the one segment go too long probably was not going to have that much time the next time. They were going to be disciplined some way. Oh, yeah. They're Whereas go Tony through. Khan, it just seems to be, he puts stuff on paper, it goes over all the time, and it's like, oh, i got to call the network and tell them we're going to go over. Yeah. And it's screwing things up. It's like... Look, this is what I take issue with Tony Khan about, is his lack of management. Mm-hmm. If I've got wrestlers who are consistently going over their time, their time's going to be cut. Or they ain't going to be on the show. Right. If you can't do it in eight minutes when I give you eight minutes, you ain't going to have any minutes. Mm-hmm. You know? But now, he's not going to do that. He's going to call the network and ask for more time. Yeah. And Dave Meltzer is saying it's the fans' responsibility to know what the next show is so they can record that show. So they can record the end of that because Tony Khan and his minions can't finish the program on time. And that's one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard in my life. You're wanting people to watch your show. Yeah. And you are timing this show out. It's your responsibility Mm -hmm. to do this correctly. Well, remember back in the, you know, late 80s, early 90s when WCW every Saturday night, they'd run up to the TV time. Then they have to shut off. But there was always something going on. Yeah. <laughs> You'd have to tune in next week to see what was going yeah. on. And I used to love the way Men South would do it. They'd say TV time remaining. Yeah. Uh-huh. And if they're still wrestling when they got to the TV time, yeah. they were ringing the bell to signal the end of the match. Yeah. So there was usually action going on in the ring. Mm-hmm. But that match was over. So it was basically yes. a draw. And then you might have that match again the following week or mm-hmm. two weeks from but I thought that that was a really smart way to do that. It was. Which made a lot of sense. Now, why can't they do the same thing? It's because nobody's in charge. That's exactly right. There is nobody in charge at AEW. Yeah. That's why they need to get, they need to get a, you know, uh, uh, he relations to, or a, a talent specialist, right? A general manager, yep, that would that be knows a good idea. To, and now he can be the owner, and that's fine. And say, well, I want to do this and do this, but let the and other if people. He still, if he still wants to be involved in creative, to me, that's fine. As long as he hires a booker that knows what. Yes, he's exactly. Doing. You know, Bill Watts always had final say, mm-hmm. but I just don't see Tony Khan doing that. No, I, I see him continuing to do it the way he's done it. Yeah, and it's going to continue to do be you think the number two a, show. Do you think it's a Napoleon complex that he's the smaller man in the in the in the fight, and he wants to prove that he can do it? I don't think so. I don't think he has a real Napoleon complex. I think it is he is a lifelong fan. Mm-hmm. This is what he's always wanted to do, and he's got the money to pull it off. Well, doesn't matter that he does. Yeah, his dad <laughs> has the money and gave it to Tony. Uh huh. It doesn't matter if he's any good at it or whatever. I'm sure he wants to be good at it. Mm-hmm. The problem is he won't listen to anybody 
to help him become good at it. Or the people he does listen to are sycophants who are just going to say what he wants right. because they want the checks to keep rolling. Mm-hmm. And this is not, Tony Khan not, not, has not only gotten in trouble with the wrestling fans at times, he's gotten in trouble with the Fulham fans yes. over in England because he's made some unwise comments on social media mm-hmm. about the football team. He's gotten in trouble with the Jacksonville Jaguars because of some comments he's made about the American football team. Mm-hmm. And he, in fact, he had a social media fight with one of his star players who I think has moved on since. Ah, mm-hmm. But for all of those things that I've, you know, raked Tony Khan over the coals, I want to say something nice about him. Oh, okay, I, 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 I got to take a break then if you're going to say something nice about him. Cause... Well, I'm just going to say, <laughs> compared to the idiot running the Carolina Panthers, he's a genius. Oh, yeah, uh-huh. This I guy, I had my doubts about him. They did a... One of those hard knocks with the Carolina Panthers a few years ago. Uh huh. I think that Ron Rivera was still the head coach then. Uh huh. But he was basically saying, you know, they put their stamp on it everywhere else in the organization, and now it was time to put their stamp on the football. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a horrible idea because you know nothing about football. Exactly. These owners that come in and they think they're football experts. Jerry Jones is one. Mm-hmm. They constantly shoot themselves Robert in Kraft. the foot. Yeah, but Robert Kraft, here's why I'll take, and I will say Robert Kraft, the the owner of my favorite team, the Philadelphia Eagles, mm-hmm. uh, Dan Lurie. Or, yeah. Is it Dan Lurie or Jeff Lurie? I think it's Dan Lurie. Mr. Lurie. Yeah, okay, Mr. You Lurie, go. the owner of the Philadelphia Eagles. He doesn't interfere with the team. He hires good football people and mm-hmm. lets them do what they need to do, and that's why the Eagles have been competitive for so long. Right. And when he screws up and makes a bad hire like a Chip Kelly... Mm-hmm. He fixes it. Or in Donald Sue. Yeah. Well, that was the, the general manager. They left. Yeah. But when he brought that Chip Kelly in, and that was a terrible idea, Yeah. he fixed it. Mm-hmm. And you compare that to these interfering owners. So you bring a, a guy in, this uh, Kevin Rule, who was a college coach, but you never know if they're going to transfer to the pros. Right. He doesn't do very well, so you let him go, and he'll go back to college and probably be a great coach. Mm-hmm. Some guys are great college coaches, some guys are great pro coaches. Nick Saban, Urban Meyer. Yeah. So, yeah. And he hires Frank Reich. Mm-hmm. He doesn't even give Frank Reich a full year with no, a project quarterback. That's what I was complaining about. It's like the guy doesn't even get a full year. He's got an unproven rookie quarterback. Project quarterback who may or may yeah. not even make it in the NFL. Exactly. That's why I said, he, you know, when he was down in Alabama, he was getting all the time in the world to throw the ball. The players weren't as fast. And now he's got people in his face within two to three seconds. He has no time to look exactly. for, you know. That's why I think Thielen's getting so many balls thrown to him is it's, oh, my goodness, and yeah, chuck uh-huh. the ball over to him. But interfering owners are almost always a horrible idea. So uh-huh. when you talk about bad owners in the NFL, you're talking about the guy down in Miami. Oh, I forgot the worst one. Who's that? Stan Kroenke. Yep. So Piece of garbage. Yep. Turns his back on his home state and moves the team to Los Angeles. So... At least Kroenke will hire people that know how to do the football and let them go, but he's still... Yeah. Stan Kroenke, if there's one person in this earth that I completely dislike and don't see any positive qualities about, it's you. Mm-hmm. So, and it, it, it's a morte. You moved the Rams, so... Right. Where was I at before I went complaining about Kroenke? Oh, we was talking about Frank Wright getting sacked without even getting a whole right, year he in. He doesn't even get a full year. against with a, Did you, know, you think he was going to turn that Titanic around in 10 months? No, it's just like it's just like college ball. Everybody's excited. Deion Sanders goes to the Buffalo, uh, Colorado Buffalo. And they're like, oh, he's going to win every game. No, you've got to take time to develop these players. That was a team that was expected to win only like one or two games. Yes. So what he did was amazing. Yeah, it was. But he wasn't going to go undefeated. He wasn't going to challenge for a national championship. Exactly. The best thing that happened to him was his son, who was a great quarterback, decided to follow him to Colorado. Exactly. And made him competitive quicker than they would have Mm -hmm. been normally. That's why I said, you know, it... But these people are like, oh, he only won, what, five games this year? But still, five they weren't expected to win anywhere yeah. close to that. But what I'm saying I can't is, remember if they ended up being bowl eligible or not. Because they came out of the gates fast. They won yeah. 
the first three or four games. Mm-hmm. And then they came back down to earth, which you knew was going to happen because they just didn't have that much talent. Yeah, exactly. And if I remember rightly, are they in the Big Ten or are they in the Pac-12? Oh, you know, I still think they're in the Big Ten, I believe. Which is a incredibly competitive conference. Yeah. Let me check that uh, out real quick. Pac-12 is nothing to sneeze at, but they're losing teams right and left. Yeah, they are. So... Now that we've had our diatribe about modern wrestling, <laughs> yeah, go ahead. is there anything else you wanted to, to cover? We talked about CM Punk in the last episode. You know, I just wonder what... The way it looks to me, it looks like they're going to try and go heel with him. Um, Which just would be fine. I think he is fine as a heel or a face. Yeah, just from what um, Seth Rollins had to say about him after um, the Survivor Series War Games. So I think they're going to try and set that up as a yeah, heel angle for they him are. to they're fight. Se- they're setting that up as a big work. Oh, did you see where uh, Paul Dangerously is? Uh, well, of course, this is all scripted. But he is upset that uh, Randy Orton is coming to SmackDown yes. because he didn't get Roman Reigns okay. Yes. <laughs> Okie dokie. <Smash. laughs> That's all I got to say. <laughs> Some of it is beyond credible, but it is. It's, they all stay within character. You know, if anybody would think that they get to approve uh-huh. who their competitors are going to be on the show, it would be Roman yeah, well, and yeah. Paul. So that all stays within character. I mean, it's preposterous, but it's still, it's all within character. It's not embarrassing or stupid. Right, exactly. And uh, I tell you what, it's going and to be interesting to see what kind of bumps he's going to take. I watched NXT... This week for the first one, watched NXT. Mm-hmm. I watched two matches. I skipped through, which is what I used to always do. Uh-huh. But I used to just skip it. I have not watched, I don't think, an NXT match mm-hmm. since Vince took it over and made it that psychedelic mess. Oh, uh-huh. You know, last year or the year before that. And I saw that Braun Breaker was going to be on there, so I watched a match that he had. Uh, the kid was halfway decent. and. He- well, I mean, he's... He Not is, as Braun. Braun. I, Braun is always good, but the kid that he was in the ring with oh. was halfway decent. Uh-huh. And then I saw Ilya Dragunov was wrestling uh, Nathan Frazier, who's a pretty exciting young wrestler. He was mm-hmm. trained in one of Seth Rollins' camps. Oh, okay. I think even before Seth came to WWE, or maybe it was during, but whatever it was, mm-hmm. um, Seth thinks a lot of him, and he, he does have a lot of talent. But right now he's kind of putting people over because he's paying his dues. Yeah. And Ilya had some of the best modern matches I've ever seen but with him and Gunther. Yeah. It's, I tell yeah, you what, he's Gunther now. He was Yeah, he was Walter before. Yeah. He's Gunther uh-huh. now. But I tell you what, and Gunther, he's, he's just a beast. Yeah. And you know, I think he would have held up at any time in wrestling Did as I? a champion. He's mm-hmm. just a big guy. Yeah. He's a good wrestler. He puts on a show. And Jim Cornette has referred to him as a modern-day Gene Kaniski, which I think is a good comparison. Oh, okay, yeah. But I will also say he's even more impressive now that he's gotten in better shape since he when he was on NXT UK, mm-hmm. he was a little chunky. Uh-huh. Still very believable as a powerful heel. Yeah. But he's being in even better shape. He looks even more imposing now mm-hmm. because he don't look like he's ever going to get tired. Yeah, I you know and, and the best match on Survivor Series, I hate to say it, was because I miss. Yep, and yeah. I've never been a Miz fan. I couldn't believe when they put the World Championship on him, but that because that's when I wasn't watching wrestling. Yeah, mm-hmm. and my nieces and nephews told me they put the belt on the Miz because uh, one of my nieces, the Miz, was her favorite. Oh, okay. Character. I'm like they put the World Title on the Miz. Yeah, because I remember you know him what? as a when he was tagging with uh, Mor- what was it John Morrison. Yeah, John Morrison. Yeah. Yeah, Morrison is what mm-hmm. they called him. But i got to say that he is very competent in the ring. You know? Oh, well, he is very much so. And I tell you what, it, it's something that a lot of these people that are perceived as heels are getting the pops. Right. They get more cheers yeah. than, than the baby faces. The only person, I've told you this, mm-hmm. because I never saw him as the guy to beat Roman, but he is beginning to grow on me. Uh-huh. And that is Cody Rhodes. Cody Rhodes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Cody Rhodes 
is the typical old-time baby face from the 80s. Mm-hmm. Not really the 90s, the 70s and 80s. Yeah. The guy coming out, slapping hands with the fans, shaking hands, posing with babies. Yep. And seems to enjoy it. Yeah, exactly. That's the reason Alex Luger never got over with the fans and that, because he never seemed like he was enjoying, enjoying it, being right. a baby face. Mm-hmm. Cody really seems to enjoy it. Yeah. Not, and that's like I said, Cody was actually... And so does uh, Jey Uso. To me, those are the yeah. guys that are more traditional baby faces. Uh-huh. And then L.A. Knight is more of a kick-butt baby face like an Austin or somebody like yeah. that. You know, I was watching... Uh, it was just on some show. It was some news program. Are they the only three baby faces that get cheers? <sighs> Might be. But Cody Rhodes actually went outside the stadium where he was wrestling or outside the arena where he was... T- and he was... Slapping the fans and having, you know... Slapping hands. Uh, uh, <laughs> we don't want to say he was beating up the yeah. fans. <laughs> no, he was slapping hands, shaking hands, you know, just going up to people and talking to them. Like, me and you talk every day, you know? Yeah. And it's just like, my God, what... You, you well, don't nobody see, does that anymore. Right, I was going to say, yeah. you don't see it anymore, so it stands out. Mm-hmm. And that was traditional babyface behavior back in the day. Yeah, you know, yeah, Going absolutely. out, signing autographs, talking to people. Mm-hmm. Reason Bullet Bob Armstrong was so huge in uh, the South was they say he would come out before the matches and just sit next to people and start talking to them. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, how you doing, Grandma? Talking to some of the o- older ladies that were around mm-hmm. ringside and all of yeah. that and posing for pictures with them and stuff. Mm-hmm. They said that's why the Bullet was huge. In the South. Yeah. But mm-hmm. you don't see it anymore, so that's why it stands out so much. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, you know, but like I said, you know, Gunther gets cheers in the ring. Uh, Rhea Ripley's getting cheers the in the ju- ring. Half of the judge. No, Dominic doesn't, but. Yeah. Uh, but he's... Damian Priest is getting <laughs> cheered. Um, who are some of the other heels? Uh, well, the bloodline always gets cheers. When yeah. Roman comes out. Everybody's standing up with their finger in the yeah. air and re- doing the recordings and uh, everything else. Yeah, I, uh, but I don't know many, you know, but it's just like I can't believe it that, you know, used to be if you were a heel. Yeah, nobody was cheering. You either. were getting stuff thrown at you. Yeah. <laughs> you were... <laughs> believe me, Bulldog Bob Brown was never getting a cheer in St. Louis. Oh, no. I don't huh? care what he did. Um, he could have saved 15 babies from a Berlin building. Right, and they'd still say that no good. What was he getting out of that? Because yeah. he didn't do that, you know. <laughs> yeah. You didn't have people getting cheered like that that were the heels. I think that started to change with that whole NWO and WCW, the cool oh. heels. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which a cool heel is kind of a misnomer because the heels aren't shouldn't be wanting to be cheered. No, uh-uh. So a cool heel, but... It's kind of the way society was going that way, too. The anti-hero was really big in the 90s and the early mm-hmm. 2000s. Who knows what's going on today? Yeah. It seems like we're always in transitions and going through cycles. Yeah. So, why don't we get into a little bit of history? Sounds good to me. And the original reason, I originally started researching the time period that I did. Mm-hmm. In pro wrestling, number one, I was under the misimpression, as so many other people were, was that prior to the rise of the promoters in the teens and the 20s, mm-hmm. that pro wrestling was primarily a competition, which I'd say probably the majority of the matches in the 19th century were contests. Yeah. You have like that tradition, uh, transition period between 1900 and... 1915, 1917. It's hard to put a hard date on it. Yeah. But around that time, matches pretty much started being worked. Mm -hmm. Unless it was to settle a promotional dispute. It was a double cross. Right. Somebody went into business for themselves. Normally, they were works after a certain You still got guys going into business for themselves. But I thought 1870 to 1915, 20... Most mm-hmm. of them were wrestling contests, and that yeah. really turned out not to be the case when I started looking at it. Like uh-huh. I said, they were mostly contests, but you had works as far back as I've gone, mm-hmm. and I've gone back to 1871. So I haven't found anything in the 1860s yet. There were pro matches. Yeah. I just haven't found any they, accounts of them yet. Back then, weren't they pretty much the carnival sports? Yes, to a degree. And the other thing that you had uh, going on is that they were illegal in some places. 
Oh, so okay. the newspapers were slower to report on the things that went on. Mm-hmm. Wrestling actually became legal before boxing. Boxing doesn't start becoming legal until the 1890s, 1900s, and the they didn't become legal until they started wearing gloves. Oh, so because... the bare knuckle boxing that was illegal almost everywhere. Well, that uh, wasn't that the bare knuckles. Didn't that start over in England? Yes. And yeah. It imported over here. Yeah. People started bare knuckle boxing here. In the 1830s and 40s. And so you remember out in the Mississippi River here, down by downtown St. Louis, you have that island yeah, mm-hmm. in the middle of no man's land, and it's not part of Illinois or Missouri, or it's right. disputed. Right. Nobody's ever been able to determine whether it's Missouri or Illinois. Well, I don't Illinois. think nobody really wants it. No, but <laughs> do you know they used to have bare-knuckle fights out on that island? Because, they used to have duels out there, too. Because it was disputed area, and nobody yeah. really said grace over it. Mm-hmm. So they wouldn't come over to that island to enforce the anti-prize fighting laws in Illinois and Missouri. Yeah. So the Daly's, who were uh, some brothers, uh, Dan Daly's son became a police officer who was killed in the line of duty in 1920. Oh, okay. But the Daly's, they had a sporting club, and... Um, so you also had Tom Allen, who was a heavyweight bare knuckle prize fighting champion, mm-hmm. based in St. Louis, and he lived here till he died. They would go out on that island. I forget what they used to call it. I thought it was called Blood Island at one. That's time. it, Blood yeah. Island. Mm-hmm. First, initially, it was called something else because it was disputed. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they started calling it Blood Island because people fought duels on that thing yeah. too. But they'd go out there and bare knuckle prize fight. Oh, okay. So people take the boats over there. And they wouldn't arrest anybody because they weren't that interested in, on that piece of land. If yeah. they had tried to box somewhere in St. Louis or out in the county, which was mostly rural, uh-huh. they would have actually the police would have actually arrested uh-huh. them for that. And that's the way it was all throughout the country. A lot of the big fights would happen, but they would have to move them a couple times. And a lot of times, the police still arrested them after the fights. Oh, okay. Because you know, you come in town, I'll beat the crap. Yeah, they, uh-huh. they know you were out there. And looked like a vagrant, right? <laughs> They know you were out there involved in a bare knuckle prize. Uh huh. So wrestling was legal before boxing. Okay. And and so I've gone back as far as the eighteen seventies, mm-hmm. and I found work matches in the eighteen seventies. So as long as there's been professional wrestling, there's been works. There's been works. Okay. And some of them were tied to ga- the gambling schemes. Mm-hmm. Uh, others were just. Tied because guys knew who could beat who, and so we'll put on a good match and we'll split the profits. Ah, uh, business sense. Almost everything that happens in professional wrestling happens because of money. I was going to ask you: if, is is it because of uh, whenever they have a work like that? Is it because of the gaming, the gambling scheme? A lot of it is because they would split that. They'd split the proceeds from the gate, and they'd split the proceeds from the gambling. Okay, because the promoter would be in cahoots with the wrestlers, and they would be out working the crowd. Yeah. So say we built up, you and I are wrestling, uh-huh. and they've got a, they can win a lot of money if you get the quickest fall. Mm-hmm. So we're going to arrange it so it looks like a fluke, but I pick you up, you fall on me, and I get pinned. Okay. They collect all the money. Mm-hmm. And then, okay, then who's going to win the match? Say all the money comes in for the promoters on me. Mm-hmm. Well, then I'm going to go over. Right. But we're going to split everything. There's no real competition between me and you because we know... We're splitting all the gambling, and we're splitting all the gate receipt. So okay. we're going to make out like bandits. Right. That's a lot of it was because of that. Mm-hmm. Some of it was just because if we had wrestled each other and we knew who was going to be who, you could just say, look, let's not get hurt tonight. Right. We, we, we know who's who. Let's split the gate. Let's split, split the gambling. Mm-hmm. And then we would have the promoter and our guys out working, and they would tell us. Hey, we got... Yes. Yeah. That's why a lot of the matches went really long, because they were building up the betting. Yeah, gotcha. Matches went really long for one of two reasons. The people that were wrestling were wrestling legitimately, and they were very they were equal in skill. Mm-hmm. And those meeting or those wrestling matches that are legitimate, where the people have equal skill, and there's it's just basically a stalemate the whole time. Okay. As I've always said. Those matches are long, boring, and inconclusive. Yeah. But a lot of times, we would be moving a lot. A mm-hmm. lot of times, that's a sign they're working together to try to build up the, the gambling. Okay. That's why a lot of those matches went two hours, three yeah. hours. Because they were trying to build up the uh, bets. Mm-hmm. 
They don't go, though, four hours, seven hours, because you start losing fans. Oh, yeah. They, they lose me after those, about an hour. Yeah, those were uh, the contests that mm. were just long, boring, and inclusive. A lot yeah. of times they'd end in draws. Hey, let's go watch the buggy rust. It'd be it, more fun. Exactly, <laughs> and, and that's what happened. That's yeah. why if they didn't start working matches, I don't know that pro wrestling would have ever become a mainstream spectator sport. Mm-hmm. Because you're not going to get people to go out and sit there for four hours to watch a contest where there's five minutes of action because right. they're stalemating each other. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it would have had to become works for it to become as popular as it did. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the 80s, you had millions of people watching wrestling every week because all the local promotions all over the country right, yeah. that were doing weekly business. Now, can you might, and you might know, you might, may not know, um, was there as many injuries back then as there was nowadays? No. Okay. Even in the legitimate contest era, mm-hmm. you could get people got hurt. Uh, yeah. Evan Lewis hurt a lot of people. Uh-huh. But in general, no, they didn't because people weren't leaving their feet. It was like an amateur wrestling competition. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. You didn't have people climbing up on stuff. I, I'm going to tell you right now. In the 80s, when you and I were watching, uh-huh. they were wrestling over 300 days a year. There were not the injuries that you're seeing today. No, uh-uh. Because the style, the style is much more dynamic. They're taking a lot bigger risks. Mm-hmm. I question why they take some of the risks when they do. You know, a huge match or something, it makes sense. Just doing it on the weekly television program, I don't know what mm-hmm. you're doing. Particularly when some of these guys are very green because they haven't been doing it that long. Yeah. And they miss half the time. That mm-hmm. looks terrible. Yeah. So, no, they did not get as hurt as they do nowadays. Mm-hmm. And some of the things that you had as far as the risks are some of the same risks that you have today. There's a lot of travel going on. Yeah. So, instead of car accidents and plane accidents, back then you had train accidents. Yeah. Or, you know, their buggy would flip over. So, you had those kinds of things going on. Mm-hmm. But in general, because they had a... We we covered this in a past episode. Evan Strangler Lewis had nine matches over six months, mm-hmm. and Ed Strangler Lewis had nine matches over a month month and a half. Right, because by the nineteen teens, the mode of travel had improved so much you could get other places much quicker. Yes, in the eighteen eighties, you couldn't get around as easy, and there was much more time between matches. Right. Almost like a, a pro boxing match now. There's so much time right. in between. Yeah. So the main reason I studied wrestling during that era is I thought it was mm-hmm. legitimate. Yeah. The other reason was is because I think, in general, the time between the Civil War and the Great Depression mm-hmm. is the second most neglected time period in American history. Well, I mean... The most know. neglected... Is the time after Andrew Jackson's presidency? Yes. To the Civil War. Uh huh. That time, other than talking about like the Nebraska Kansas Compromise, mm-hmm. there's very little scholarship in that time period. Yes. And it's the same for the Gilded Age, going into World War One, and mm-hmm. all of that. It's a more neglected time. Uh, go to go to your library. You're going to see tons of stuff on the Civil War. Yeah. Tons of stuff on. World War Two and the Great Depression, which I kind of put together, mm-hmm. uh, the Watergate era and the Revolutionary War. You'll yeah. see tons of stuff on it. Sixties, yeah, sixties mm-hmm. have been written about to death. Yeah, you won't see as much about this time period. So that was one of the other reasons that I studied this time period. Okay, and my re- most recent research project has been on Ed Strangler Lewis. Uh-huh. and we always talk about where some of the false information comes from because there's a lot of false information around. Lewis's early career, and uh-huh. part of that is some of it is put out by the wrestlers themselves. Okay. So in the 1920s, when the Goldust Trio was at the height of its power, uh, Sandow and Lewis, Billy Sandow was the manager of Ed Strangler Lewis. The mm-hmm. other member of the Goldust Trio was Joseph Titzmont, right? who was Lewis's training partner and Sandow's promotional partner slash booker. He booked a lot of the wrestlers that they used. Mm-hmm. They were had a license to print money basically in the 1920s, and to capitalize on that fame, Sandow and Lewis put out a training course 
on physical education and wrestling. Okay. It was like eight books or whatever. Uh-huh. They, they called it the Sandow Lewis Library. And I was fascinated because I started reading uh, on the intro to one of these books. Uh-huh. And this is what it says. It's an editorial note from Billy Sandow, Master Physical Culturist, which is what physical education training, working out, that's what it was called back in that day was physical culture. Yeah. And manager, trainer of Ed Strangler-Lewis. Ah. Just as the mention of the name Ed Strangler-Lewis calls to mind the name of Billy Sandow, so also does the mention of Billy Sandow's name call to mind the name of Ed Strangler-Lewis. Mm-hmm. Billy Sandow and his association with Ed Strangler-Lewis has been even more than manager and trainer. He has been a super manager, a super trainer, and very humble as well. I added that in. Uh, okay. <laughs> for, for the achievements shared by these two have no parallel in all athletic <clears throat> history. Mm-hmm. Recognizing in Lewis the amateur, the unmistakable natural qualifications of a great champion, if properly developed and guided, Sandow was quick to persuade Lewis, the beginning wrestler, to become Lewis the professional. So if you heard that, you would think that Billy Sandow discovered Ed Strangler-Lewis and convinced him to become a professional. Would you not? It sounds like that to me. Okay. So in reality, Ed Strangler-Lewis probably learned to wrestle in the carnivals. I have never been able to make that distinct one-on-one connection. Uh Uh-huh. But he definitely knew how to hook. Yeah. Hook was people that you learn that from people who were involved in carnival wrestling. Because if you wrestled a really good local shooter, somebody who was really good at amateur style wrestling, mm-hmm. these guys would know hooks or submissions to cripple this kid if they were getting a better view. Because oh, right. carnivals were not in, mon- in business to lose money. No, they're not. And, but regardless, by. Uh, 1911, when he was 19 years, or, yeah, he was 19 years old, because uh, he would turn 20 that same year. Mm-hmm. Or no, he, 1910, December 1910. He has his first professional match that I've been able to find. Uh-huh. And he had several professional matches in 1911. And at that time, he was wrestling as Robert Friedrich, his real name. Yes. And uh, one of the stories was always that Lewis changed his name to Ed Strangler Lewis. To hide from the, his parents the fact that he was wrestling professionally. Oh, okay. Except for the fact that he wrestled in his hometown of Nukuza, Wisconsin. And they call- As a professional by under his regular name. So his parents knew he was wrestling. Nukuza, of- Wisconsin is not St. Louis. You could not uh-huh. hide the fact that you were doing something from your parents in so small a town when it was written up in the local newspaper. You know, that was... Everybody, it'd be like in Scott City. Yeah. You had a match at the Scott City uh, Community Center, mm-hmm. and they put it in the newspaper. Everybody in town's going to be talking about it, and they'd be talking about it with your parents. Well, that's funny. Uh, in NASCAR, Bobby Allison, didn't his dad didn't want him to race. He entered his first race under a false name and won. So it's in the papers. So his dad sees it. And he comes, he calls Bobby in. He says, Bobby, he says, I don't want you to race, but if you're going to race, race under your own damn name. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I can, so, so, I can. Didn't fool him either. <laughs> and if, if he wrestled under Bobby Allison, it would be even less of a secret. Exactly. <laughs> and so he wrestles in Montana a bit. Uh-huh. And then in 1913, he moves to. Lexington, Kentucky, where his pro career really gets going. Oh, okay. And he is managed by the Louisville promoter. Was it Louisville or Lexington? Yeah, he was Louisville promoter originally. Okay. And uh, his partner, Barton, was the Lexington promoter. Uh-huh. But Walls kind of promoted all of it. And Jerry M. Walls was also Lewis's manager. Mm-hmm. Eventually, because uh, he brought him in as a referee, um... Walls would bring in a referee by the name of Haywood Allen, uh-huh. who would become the promoter in Louisville. But he moves to Lexington, and he wrestles in Lexington and Louisville primarily, but he also wrestles in other Chicago. He wrestles in, he goes to Birmingham, he goes to Georgia. Mm-hmm. Later in 1913 and early in 1914, beginning in 1930, he's only wrestling in Louisville and Lexington. Okay. 
an occasional spot show outside of that. And Billy Sandow meets <coughs> Strangler Lewis in late 1913 uh-huh. when he brings the guy he's managing, Billy Jenkins, to challenge Lewis. Ah, okay. And Sandow does see the makings of a future world champion in Lewis mm-hmm. and spends the next few months luring Lewis away from walls. And Sandow does become his manager before the end of 1914. Okay. But... He didn't even meet him until he'd been a pro for about three or four years. Right. (laughs) So when you ask, where does all this hogwash about these wrestlers come from? A lot of times it comes from the wrestlers and managers themselves. Ah. And that's one of the challenges when you're doing history like this. A lot of the stuff that's out there, you really got to be careful about because it is a lot of times inaccurate or it's apocryphal. Mm -hmm. It's not really completely accurate and you've got to check sources one of the best books on early professional wrestling and i'm talking 30s but he talks about the second gotcha yeah is a book called the fall guys the barnum of bounce by marcus griffin okay and marcus griffin had been a journalist and he had been hired by the buffalo wrestling promotion office Mm -hmm. to be their public relations man it's similar to what happened to sam muchnick his job with the St. Louis Star-Times was eliminated, and he was hired by Tom Pax to be the publicity guy, and Tom Pax basically taught him the wrestling business. Yeah. So, similar thing with Griffin. But Griffin got fired in the late 30s, and he was pissed off about it. Mm Mm-hmm. So he wrote this book to get even with the promoters. Now, he didn't release it until after Jack Curley was dead. Uh-huh. who was the New York promoter and who he got most of the information from. Right. But he didn't release it till after Curly was gone. Well, probably a good uh, idea. Yeah, it was probably a very <laughs> good idea. And what I've always told people is that is a great book to start with. Uh-huh. But do not repeat the things written in that book like they're gospel because a lot of the things that I have seen in that book are not accurate. Okay. They're... Based on a true story, but there's embellishments, there's mm-hmm. other things. And so it's not, you cannot just take that, what it says in there, to the bank. Right. And that's with a lot of these things that you see that come from the wrestlers mm-hmm. themselves. Yeah. You can't always take that to the bank. You've got to do some more research and fact check and make sure that what they're saying is actually but I actually had already knew that wasn't true because I just I had been researching and I had got to the point where Sandow and Lewis meet for the first time. Yeah. And it was three or four years after Lewis had been a professional. Oh, wow. So, so tall Sand- tales and wrestling. So Sandow was kind of a bit of a... But most managers are. I yeah. I mean, they're all in the, the hyperbole. You know, it's a worked business. So... Yeah. They consider themselves working you, so they could say whatever they want because it's all part of the show, building the anticipation, the make-believe and everything. Right. So you're not held to, oh, I've got to tell the truth on this because the working is lying to the fans. Mm Mm-hmm. And most managers were like that. So it did not shock me at all that there's Fantasy Island in the beginning of this book because that's... Typically what I'd expect. The most honest autobiography I have ever read was by George Hackenschmidt. Mm-hmm. And at the end of his book, On My Way to Life and uh, to Strength and Health, which is uh, is basically about his training methods. Because mm-hmm. he held several world weightlifting records as well. I was going to say, George Hackenschmidt had the physique before physiques were a yeah, thing. Yeah, the, he was pretty steroid. Yeah. But the... Um, end of that the last part of that book he talks about his life in wrestling Mm -hmm. and he was pretty honest about everything that happened but he would not speak about the frank Koch matches ah he said there's been so much written about him i couldn't really add to him yeah and i listened to a podcast by mike chapman on shut up and wrestle Mm -hmm. and he said gotch could instill that kind of anger in people because Tom Jenkins didn't want to talk to him about him either, and Tom Jenkins was his greatest rival. Mm-hmm. And 
he, he was also the most successful against Gotch. He and Gotch, in their primes, met six times, and they split those matches three and three, all contests. Yeah. And then uh, Jenkins goes into semi-retirement because he is uh, the self-defense and fitness instructor at West Point. Uh-huh. And he held that position for a long time. So the next two matches he wrestled Gotch after he was semi-retired, he lost both of those pretty convincingly. Yeah. But in their competitive matches, they were three and three. He didn't like to talk about Gotch either. But they said Hackenschmidt, who was a very convivial gentleman for the most part, mm-hmm. if you brought up Frank Gotch's name, he would just kind of growl and say, Ma'am, I'm sorry, I will not speak about Frank Gotch. Oh, wow. And they said he was like that until the day he died. But Jenkins got to liken this guy that Chapman was talking to. Uh-huh. And finally one day he said, Look, I know you're dying to hear about Frank Gotch. He goes... Frank Gotch beat George Hackenschmidt twice and me five times. That's uh-huh. all you need to know about Frank Gotch. Oh, wow. So it's basically, yes, I respect him. Yes, he's a great wrestler. But the reason they didn't like him, Gotch was a dirty wrestler too. Yeah. But he used, he didn't, wasn't a dirty wrestler like uh, Evan Strangler Lewis just like to hurt people. Uh-huh. He was a dirty wrestler as he used that as part of his tactics to take people off their game and to beat them in contests. Mm-hmm. That's why he fouled, and Jenkins gave it right back to him. Yeah. So Jenkins had more success than many. Gotcha. Hackenschmidt, that was not his way of doing things. He would not foul back, and so he just got fouled and butted and everything for two hours uh-huh. in their first match. In the second match, he was so debilitated, he probably shouldn't have been in the ring. But yeah. He thought that he was in good enough shape that he could train for Gotch. But he got injured early on, and that that match was kind of a debacle anyway. Yeah. So that that's why you have all these tall tales, and you got to be very careful about when you're researching things. Okay. And I always tell people if you find something that you think is wrong, and you have a source that I find credible, I'll change it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But don't just say, "Well, you need to change this because I." Well, why do you believe that? Well, I heard. Well. Yeah. You may have heard, but you could have heard from a bad source. Or don't say I found because, it on Sportskedia. Right. Yeah, that. <laughs> that's one of those clickbait sites. Uh-huh. But, yeah, you could have heard, but there's lots of common stuff out there that mm-hmm. is not true. Yeah. I disproved in Double Cross and the Gold Dust Trio. They did not take the championship off Stanislaus Abisko because he couldn't draw. He was a very good draw. Uh-huh. They took it off him because he was getting older, and they wanted to put it back on Lewis. They took it off Lewis and put it on Zabisco just to cool Lewis off a little bit because the uh, commissions were starting to ban the headlock. He yeah. had gotten it over so much. It's not even a legitimate wrestling hole for the most part, but he had gotten it over so big that the athletic commission started to ban it. Right. And I don't think they planned on Zabisco holding the title as long as he did, but he was a decent draw. Yeah. And he was another legitimate wrestler that could keep from being double-crossed. Tim and Lewis, nobody's going to take the uh, title off them because they were probably the only two that could beat each other. Right. And, But you, I'm sure you've heard that what a horrible draw Dick Hutton was. Yeah. Dick Hutton was a horrible draw. Oh, okay. I looked into that because I'm like, is this another case of Stanislaus Bisco? No. Uh, he could not. He was from Oklahoma. He was a big star in Oklahoma in amateur wrestling uh-huh. in college. He couldn't draw over six or 7,000 fans in Oklahoma. Oh, wow, in his home state. <clears throat> yep, and everywhere else he drew a couple thousand fans. There were people that left the NWA over that because he was such a lousy draw. Oh, so, and nobody wanted to wrestle him or nobody well, wanted to they, match with him or... No, he was a legitimate wrestler. That's why Fez chose to drop it to him. Yeah. Fez, in all honesty, should have dropped it to Buddy Rogers, who was the biggest star. Oh, yeah. But Buddy Rogers had, in, in fact, the match we're going to review this uh, week, you saw Ed Strangler Lewis. He's the heavy set guy that's standing next to Fez during the instructions. Oh, okay. Because yeah. he was Fez's manager during this time, and that's what Buddy Rogers was complaining about. Oh, okay. So when you booked the world champion, you paid a booking fee to the NWA that went to Sam Muchnick in the NWA, Uh and you paid the champion a certain portion of the gate in this. Mm -hmm. Well, Thez had it worked out that part of his money went to Lewis. Okay. And that was because he worshipped Lewis, and Lewis was... He wasn't blind, but he could only see the outlines of people by now. He had trachoma. Yeah. Which made him blind. 
And Buddy Rogers, when they were on a trip somewhere, they were going to be wrestling. And whenever Rogers and Thez wrestled, it was big money. Mm -hmm. He goes, why are we cutting that old blankety blank in? Oh, yes. that, and then, oh, and that was that was that was Stez's reaction. Oh, was Stez said he would never ever lose to Buddy Rogers after that. Yeah, after insulting Strangler Lewis. <clears throat> and actually, I understand Buddy Rogers' perspective, but mm -hmm. he, I don't think he understood that was coming out of Thez's cut. Yeah, I think in Buddy Rogers' mind. You and I are earning. We're the ones drawing these crowds, and he's getting. And part we're going to cut money. something into to Lewis because he was a champion in the past, and he's blind now. Yeah, I don't think he understood that money was coming out of Thez's. That was not. Yeah, the Thez's out pocket. of both of theirs. Right. But you could understand why one of his challengers, if they were drawing big money, would object to splitting the pot further. Well, yeah, I, I could see that. Yeah. But the way he said it was not diplomatic. No. And it was guaranteed to piss off Luthez, which you didn't really want to do. I was going to say, if Luthez said something to me, uh, yes, sir. Yes, sir, Mr. Thez. <laughs> yes, because exactly. Buddy Rogers was a worker. Uh-huh. Luthez could have tied him up in a knot. The only way Buddy was going to hurt you is if you gave him your body. Right. Because he, he dropped uh, Bruno San Martino over the top rope. Yeah. Almost off to his head. Oof. And San Martino said he did that on purpose to try to hurt San Martino because he knew he was going to be a big star. Yeah. So he could hurt you if you gave him his body to hurt you. Mm -hmm. But Thez could hurt you whether you gave him your body or not. Right. You know, so. Lose the tie up and stretch you. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why Thez would never lose him. He dropped it to Hutton. Yeah. And Hutton held it for like a year, 14 months. The one thing that's not true People think Hutton, his career was over after he dropped the NBA title. Uh huh. It wasn't. He just wasn't in the spotlight as much. He basically went to California, and he was a he was never a drawing card, but uh -huh. he was a credible enough guy that he helped get the heels over in California. And he basically homesteaded out there. Yeah. From he he dropped the title to O'Connor in fifty nine. So he held it for maybe a year, 14 months. Uh-huh. And then he went to Los Angeles, and he pretty much stayed there until the late 60s, early 70s. He retired, like, in 72, somewhere around there. Yeah. I get to go back and look. It's been a few months since I looked into that. But it wasn't like he was a huge draw in Los Angeles, but he was a credible mm -hmm. enough wrestler. He could get their people over, and Jewel Strongbow liked to use him. Oh, okay. Not the fake brother of Jay Strongbow from the 80s. But the real... The original Jewel Strongbow, Strongbow yeah. who was the Los Angeles booker uh -huh. forever. And he was the booker up until he died in the mid-70s. Oh. And if you look at L.A., you know how they said L.A. died? Yeah. L.A. died when Jewel Strongbow died. Oh, okay. It's like the LaBelles didn't really know how to book. Strongbow had drawn all those cards and stuff up because yeah. he was the booker for 20, 30 years. When Strongbow died, they had no real ability to book that, and that thing was dead a couple years before Vince even came in. Oh, okay. Vince bought it from him. That was one of the first ones he bought because it was dead. Yeah. And then he backed out on the deal because he really realized he hadn't bought anything because ah. they had nothing. <clears throat> but yeah, they... Some of the places that were dead when Vince came in, they mm -hmm. were dead from mismanagement from, or they were old guys running the promotion. Yeah. Like a bruiser in Indianapolis who never developed young talent. Yeah. They and their friends always stayed on top, even though they were in their 50s and looked in their 50s. I'll tell you right now, when Dick the Bruiser was in his 50s, I would have still called him Mr. Bruiser. Well, yeah, you would have. Um, but. You didn't develop any new stars. Like, one of the things I think that boy world class was so big was Fritz turned over to his boys. Yeah. Uh -huh. Now, the heels initially in 82 were older guys, but when David went to Florida and then brought back the Freebirds and Garvin, mm -hmm. they struck gold. Oh, yeah. So, so, we've been talking about Mr. Thez. Why don't we just talk about the match we reviewed? I wanted to get your initial thoughts on it because I was impressed by a couple things. 
within uh, the match. I was. Uh, I, I, oh, I. Should we tell them what we're reviewing? Oh yeah, you might want to do that. So we're reviewing Wild Bill Longson versus Luthez, and it's from the Dallas Sportatorium in 1952. You can find it on YouTube, and if you go mm-hmm. to uh, KenLimmerJr.com and go to the show notes for this episode, this will be episode 39.5, which it'll be KenLimmerJr.com slash episode 39-5. Uh, yeah. Because you, you can't do a period, you got to do a slash. Yeah. I will have a link to this match in there. There's a couple versions of it. The one we reviewed was the 19-minute, 22nd version. Yes. And it's a two-out-of-three fall match from the Dallas Sportatorium in 1952 with Ray Gunkel as the referee. Ray Gunkel is a great wrestler in his own right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Before he went to Georgia and was one of the part owners in Georgia, he was a big star in Texas. And was the special referee here. Normally, Otto Cust would be the referee. And it was a two out of three falls match. Uh, while Bill Longson was 47 or 48 in this match, because he was born in 1904. Yeah. And Luthez, who was born in 1916, was either 35 or 36. Yeah. And um, I'll let you share your thoughts first, and then I'll give my thoughts about it. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, I thought it was a very well done match. Uh, if it was a work, um, oh, it definitely was a work. So I mean, fifty-two is yeah. a work. They, they, uh, it, w- it was done very well. The uh, thing is, but, it, it was harder to see through that match than it is to see through most of the matches today. Yeah, uh, I was very, I was very surprised. Uh, you know, some of the some of the uh, wrestling from then can be kind of hokey, or you can really see it's you know that it being exposed. But uh, both the guys had clean cut moves. Um, Lawson was kind of a kind of a cheater. Yeah, he was definitely a, <laughs> he was a classic heel, and it was funny. He would do those little heel things. <clears throat> yeah, that were subtle. Uh huh. But you knew he was a heel. I, I love what he untied does uh, shoe when he had him in the toehold. Oh yeah, and then was taking <laughs> the point of the shoelace and digging it into his shin. Uh-huh. And making Thez bad where Thez was slapping him because there's a couple times there. Thez uh, slapped Longson a couple times. Uh-huh. Um, and then, uh, of course, Longson's uh, patented escape route over the top rope. That was, I was so impressed when he did, that's one of the things I was going to say. Uh-huh. When he was the NWA, National Wrestling Association, yes. the National Wrestling, when he was the National Wrestling Association champion in the 30s and 40s, <coughs> based primarily out of St. Louis, mm-hmm. he used to do that move where he would jump over that rope like that. Yeah. I had it. Did I hear it on Jim Cornette's show? He did that move one time in St. Louis and landed at the feet of a fan uh-huh. who had a heart attack. Oh shit! I'm pretty sure. I mean, was, oh shoot! Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was St. Louis. Oh man, you're gonna have to edit that out. Yeah, because he was he was a um, huge star in St. Louis when he was NWA champion. He was basically based out of St. Louis. Uh huh. And he would when he retired. Um, in the 50s, uh, Sam Muchnick and Thez owned the promotions packs and sold out to Thez, who then went in partnership with Muchnick. Yeah. Longson was their booker for the longest time. Okay. He just he turned it over to Pat O'Connor when he started getting a little sick. Yeah. In the early 70s. But Larry Matisic, uh considers Wild Bill Longson and Sam Muchnick his teachers on pro wrestling. Oh, okay. He talked about how brilliant of a mind Longson had. Well, you know, you probably can't go wrong with either one of those guys being your teacher. So. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Larry Mattistick, may he rest in peace, that man was, did a lot for St. Louis wrestling. And he was the voice of my childhood. Yes. Yeah, that's, yeah. that was my first announcer. I hear people say all the time Jim Ross was the voice of their childhood. Well, for me, it was Larry Mattistick. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> Longson used to do that move. And, I, and when he did that, and he's, I know he's 48 and he's getting heavier. Mm-hmm. I'm like, wow, to be able to do that. Because he jumped over that top and he landed feet first yes. on the floor. Yes, he did. You know, like he was Randy Savage. Was you know, that that had to have hurt the old Tootsies a yep. little bit. Because that was, what is that, maybe about 10 foot? At least, yeah, yeah. I'd say. 10, 12 feet to the floor. Mm-hmm. And that, that's just, that was amazing. And, and I just thought Longson was a great heel, which is some of the subtle things he would do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The 
grabbing the hair, the little punches, yep. the grabbing onto the ropes. And your heels don't do that anymore. No, they don't know how to get real heat. No, they don't. And you know, that's one of the things, that's why I like the territory wrestling so much, is because all of your all of your villains knew how to get heat. Yes, and people and, were not cheering them. No, they weren't. They were booing the hell or booing the heck out of them. That's yeah. a boo, you know. Yeah. And uh, now I'll tell you what, except for um, one time, uh, Ivan Koloff came to the ring, and I forgot who he was wrestling. But it was, you know, that little TV studio. There was maybe 100 people in there at the most. And he got the biggest pop I'd ever heard a villain get. Yeah. And I was like, why are they... And he was just wrestling some schlub. I'm like, why are they Why are they cheering him? This is... But, you know, whatever, so... Koloff is another one of those guys I appreciate a lot more now than I did when I first saw him. Oh, uh, yeah. But, well, uh, and some of the things that I think it reminds me how moves change sometimes. Uh-huh. So you had the sideways backdrops, which you see them all the time in the 50s. Yeah. Where the instead of being facing each other and the guy dropping down and then he, he stands up uh-huh. and flips the guy over his back, he kind of does the same thing, but it's over his side. Mm-hmm. He's standing sideways. The guy comes and he does the same thing, only it's a sideways. And, and the drop kicks. Yes. And that the other thing was those drop kicks of Thez is where they just basically jump up in the air and kick you with both feet as they're <laughs> facing you. As yeah. opposed to the modern drop kick where they jump up kind of sideways, hit you with their feet, and as they're hitting you with their feet, they turn and they land face first towards the mat with yeah. the slapping the mat. Thez is just flat back bumping yeah. as he's doing the drop kicks. Uh-huh. No, like I said, I was I was in it it was an entertaining match. Uh it went two out of three falls in about twenty minutes. Yeah. And uh if I was if I had been at the arena during that time period, I would have been entertained. Yeah. I was entertained now. I was gonna say I was entertained now. Yeah. So and it's a match that holds up. Yeah. It does. Oh, and uh, I'm, the one thing I'm disappointed in is uh-huh. that's the only Wild Bill Longson match I can find. Oh, okay. On there. Yeah. There is a like a six-man tag <laughs> that he's yeah. doing in the mid-50s, but it was not nearly. You didn't get to see really what Wild Bill Longson was all about like you did in this match with Thez. Yeah. And that, that was really good. So, And then... Uh, Longson uh, married a St. Louis girl. That's yeah. why he stayed. Oh, okay. And he actually died in St. Louis in 1976. I think he's buried out in Calvary. Is he, I was going to say, was he buried in Calvary? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Uh, but a St. Louis legend and Wild Bill Longson, along mm-hmm. with another St. Louis legend who was born here, uh, Luthez. Yes. And a very entertaining match. So uh, I highly recommend it. You know, yeah. It's not two-hour headlocks or any of the other nonsense right. you hear about older wrestling. I didn't see two-hour headlocks when I was seeing things. No, me neither. Now, you would see maybe they'd do a chin lock for five minutes to bring the crowd uh, down. Yeah. And then, you know, the guy would escape, and that would build the crowd back up. Mm-hmm. But it was not rest holds. and Those terms are modern terms yeah. that are fan terms. That stuff has never existed in the wrestling business. Right. Rest holds and work rate. Those are all modern fan metrics. Those are not traditional terms mm-hmm. in pro wrestling. Well, do you have anything else you want to cover? I think we've covered quite a bit this week. Uh, we didn't uh, cover our commercials this week. Oh, well, please. Uh, uh, just remember, everybody, that I also have a, a, a site called Red Hawk Mercantile. Uh, we I sell all kinds of uh, new and used material on there, anything from belt buckles, golf balls, and uh, jigsaw puzzles. So if you need something for Christmas, come check out my site. It's Red Hawk Mercantile on eBay, and we also have a uh, cousin, my cousin, and uh, Tamara and I also have a antique booth at the uh, Old Time Finds uh, Antique Mall in High Ridge, Missouri. We're in the big building, booth 214. We got a lot of Christmas stuff out now, so come check that out and uh, return you to our regularly uh, scheduled programming. Yeah, and I, I don't have a real commercial for this week. <laughs> I do know it's Christmas time, though, and if you'd like to get somebody you care about who's a wrestling fan a book on wrestling history, the three most popular ones I have 
or Gotch versus Hackenschmidt, which gets rid of a lot of the myths about the Gotch versus Hackenschmidt matches. Mm-hmm. Uh, Double crossing the Goldust trio, probably my most popular one, and probably the longest one. A lot of research went into that one. Uh huh. And then, and that I always consider that the second part of Stanislaw Sabisco's career too. Right. Because th- that's your major players is the Goldust trio and Stanislaw Sabisco. And then the final one that's been really popular with people is shooting or working the history of the American Heavyweight Wrestling Championship, and that's a relatively new book. Um, I've done that one in the last year or two, mm-hmm. uh, so that that's as commercial as I'm going to get this week. <laughs> uh, other than that, we thank you for listening, and we hope we were at least somewhat entertaining. Um, next week's episode will probably be entertaining for most people, other than me, who tr- had to try to herd the cats. Ill-tempered cats who didn't want to be herded. and I think you're talking more about your sons than me. I just sat over here. They've always been <laughs> ill-tempered cats. So, as a parent, my goal was always that my kids would be independent thinkers. Mm-hmm. And my daughter and I were talking about that a few weeks ago. And she said, how did that work out for you, Dad? I said, I have succeeded beyond my wildest dreams. <laughs> yeah. Now, all three of them are independent seekers, thinkers, so mm-hmm. in that sense, I succeeded. And they're both very good kids. Yeah, well, all three of them. And uh, yeah. The, the three of them together, though, uh, can be quite frustrating because they are, are such independent thinkers. Mm-hmm. So. But... I'm sure there's other parents out there that have those <laughs> same challenges. So, mm-hmm. All right, so we will be back for the Christmas episode next week, and then we will do the New Year's Eve episode, and then I'll have to decide if I ever want to do this again, but we probably will. So, <laughs> Until next time, take care, everybody. And happy holidays. Bye-bye.